welcome to our new series on the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host, Dr. Farah Khalid, and I am a consultant counselling psychologist and assistant professor in clinical psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy. Whilst I've specialised in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies, I also weave in cognitive behavioural therapeutic methods as well in my work. And you can learn much more about me in the episode notes, so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me and my background. I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or um, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist, also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma and I feel really honoured that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them and I feel very privileged for that opportunity and that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write into us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us 
on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. So Dr. Farah, could you please tell us a little bit about the book we're going to be discussing today, The Twits by Roald Dahl? Mm-hmm. So I read this for the first time in my whole life. I did not read this as a child. I, I think it wasn't part of my Roald Dahl collection. Mm-hmm. I, was, I had the other main books. So Mr. and Mrs. Twit, I did not read. It's the first time I've read it. We, um, uh, we kind of open up uh, with the story of um, two people who are husband and wife. So this is Mr. and Mrs. Twit, they're called. Um, and they are, they're described um, as two people who are quite hairy um, and uh, they kind of look very messy, they're, they're, they're quite dirty in their habits as well. So Waldahl does depict quite a, a, a detailed picture of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, we find out that they both, they both are living together, they have no children. Um, they live in a typically fairly, you know, typical house and they play pranks on each other um, where one example is Mrs. Twit kind of puts worms in his spaghetti. He doesn't really know, Mr. Twit doesn't know, but when he finds out, of course, he takes his vengeance and then uh, plays a prank on Mrs. Twit. And it kind of goes back and forth. They both kind of really trick each other, um, you know, they, they prod each other, poke each other in, in and cause some turmoil really to each other. They, they really do taunt each other a lot. Um, and then by the middle of the story, we learn that they also have kept these monkeys in a cage, and we'll speak more about that as well. Um, the monkeys are used to um, play tricks, um, and they, they were trained. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Twit are now retired, but before they used to train monkeys for uh, circus entertainment. So, so there is a family of monkeys that are kept in a cage back in outside in the garden, I believe it is. And then um, the monkeys kind of plot against um, Mr. and Mrs. Twit, and they come up with this grand idea, which we'll talk about later on in the episode today. And by the end of the story, um, we end up with Mr. and Mrs. Twit going back to their house, and everything's upside down. So the furniture is all the other way around, it's being glued together and their whole reality is is changed and then they both start to shrink um, and that's the end of the story. They, bo- they both shrink and all that's left of Mr and Mrs Twit are their um, clothes. Great, thank you Dr Farah. Um, I think that gives us a um, idea of what the book is about and I thought it would be interesting to start with something that really is a big theme in the book, like you mentioned, their hairiness. Mm-hmm. Um, very early on, we're told about Mr. Twit's beard in excruciating detail. Um, and I, I've, you know, we've read a couple of Roald Dahl books and I've read other ones we haven't covered yet. Mm-hmm. But this is a really evocative passage. The, it's very early on. It's, um, I think, two pages into the book mm-hmm. where it's called The Beard where Roald Dahl describes uh, Mr. Twit's beard as something that's, that food is stuck in and it's gross. And I felt physically sick as I read this, which was which said something about what, he, what the writer was trying to evoke. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be helpful just for us to talk a little bit about where that might be coming from, uh, for, from the, from, 
coming from for the author and uh, generally how hair and beards are looked at uh, across cultures mm-hmm. and what the implications of that are in our world today. So just to start with, I thought it'd be helpful to talk about um, hair and what it has meant <laughs> and what it symbolizes. So there's different things, hairlessness and being hairy have meant different things in different cultures, different mm-hmm. times. Uh, some ways to think about it are, you know, how Adam was depicted as beardless before the fall and had long and bushy hair and a beard when he fell into sin. Mm. So there's something about beards and hairiness being connected to, to sin in that or, or evil in that. Um, in Hindu symbolism, uh, hairs like threads of the fabric symbolize the lines of force of the universe. It's also, uh, hair also corresponds with the element of fire. Mm-hmm. Of course, hair, being hairy or hairless is, you know, in a part of the whole thing, but the color of the hair also has mm-hmm. a secondary meaning often. So brown or black hair reinforces the symbolism of hair in general, that it's dark, terrestrial energy. Um, mm-hmm. Golden hair, you know, you might know is related to the sun's rays or mm-hmm. it's sort of this angelic thing that it tries to evoke. Um, and it would be helpful to contextualized uh, to contextualize this to our situation and mm-hmm. Muslims, as you might know, cover Muslim women cover their hair, uh, the hair on their head, out of modesty and privacy from unrelated males. Uh, but Sikhs also have a practice where they don't cut their hair mm-hmm. because they believe that their hair is a gift from God, and therefore it would be wrong to cut it. Uh, in China, particularly, there is a lot of uh, strong political and social meaning attached to hair. Uh, for instance, in ancient times, they cherished the hair as a symbol of self-respect, and it was valued as highly as the body itself. And so people who had wronged or needed to be insulted or punished had their hair removed, mm-hmm. which is very different from how it might be in other places. Um, I think part of why this is the way it is and hair has as much political and social meaning is because it's one of the things that doesn't, um, like flesh, it doesn't decay with time, right? When, mm-hmm. when Even when people die, hair continues to exist. And you might have heard of in Victorian times how people would carry around locks of their mm-hmm. loved one's hair after they died. Mm-hmm. So that's another practice that's about the about hair kind of um, being more permanent than the body in some ways, mm-hmm. other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just kind of building on that, we talk about Mr. Twit's beard, which mm-hmm. is bristly and what are the other words that he uses? Slimy. Um, and he talks about how food is stuck in, in his beard and he just... Um, you know, it's really disgusting. I don't know how you felt about it, Dr. Farah, when you read this bit. Did you have any feelings? No, um, do you know, I think I've gone the other way to Really? Yeah, I, had, I was really detached. I had no kind of sensory experiences. Or, really? Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I feel I, it is very interesting. And this could be my own defense against it. It could or be. Or it could be me. Or it could feelings be. About well, the I think you'll, I think you'll, <laughs> When you come to the research I'm going to talk about about the emotions with okay. beards, but I think part of it, part of it 
part of it might be um so you know i've uh, uh, growing up as a young child like under the age of 10 mm -hmm. so i think part of me being detached from it probably is because i've i've been a carer been a caregiver of somebody my uh, my mm -hmm. primary care caregiver mm -hmm. who I've, i think i've mentioned before mm -hmm. um who you know uh, died um of cancer so i've cared for her mm -hmm. and i've i've kind of had to kind of face a lot of gore and mm -hmm. a lot of bodily fluids mm -hmm. and a lot of kind of quite uh, slimy messy you know mm -hmm. so I, i'm just thinking off the top of my head i think that probably plays a huge role in why mm -hmm. these things don't really phase me okay yeah that would make sense um and i and i went to an all girls <laughs> university and hostel uh, well i didn't go to an all girls university it was a all girls hostel where there was a lot of hair in the bathroom always so maybe that's why i oh, got feelings, <laughs> feelings about it living with girls always means the drains are clogged oh yes <laughs> So um what we do know on Roll Dahl and this is something that came to my attention is that um I didn't know this it was something I found out fairly recently that he we know that he served in the RAF as a fighter pilot but the RAF it's which is the Royal Air Force mm -hmm. uh has a very strong or had a very strong position on beards historically particularly in the second world war and they were always told to be clean shaven uh this was partly because of political uh, reasons but also practical reasons because gas masks were harder to fit around bearded faces mm. and the breathing apparatus uh couldn't form that airtight seal if there was hair so he we know that that was a really pivotal time in Roldal's uh life and um maybe that's where his aversion to beards or associating them with evil or uh mischief or you know uh things being disgusting or uncivilized mm. uh that association for him perhaps came from there um and so i that's something i was thinking about and i don't know if you knew dr farah but roldal learned to fly in nairobi yeah. yes yeah i did when i read his uh, autobiography that's right yeah. yes yeah so he that's where he learned to fly and he had quite a prolific RAF career mm -hmm. um and the RAF's position on beards it's it's been different across like the, the navy is fairly open about it uh and they're open to having beards the army's position changed when they began fighting wars in India because in South Asia facial hair is associated with wisdom and uh authority mm -hmm. you know like a mustache particularly mm -hmm. so they they were encouraged actually to have facial hair mm -hmm. um but what i did uh find was that it was only very recently in september 2019 that the raf allowed uh their personnel to grow a full set of beard but oh, yeah, i didn't know that but there's a, there's even a condition to that that they must be short and neatly trimmed okay and not goatee. patchy no 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 not even a, no a full set of beard, beard yeah and it must be neatly trimmed mm -hmm. and not patchy So oh. there's also there's things mm -hmm. around that. Um I was quite surprised to learn mm -hmm. that. I don't know how mm -hmm. you feel about it, but mm -hmm. I mean we don't have any feelings. No. <laughs> um but yeah, so there's a lot of emotional, social and political um uh, sort of meaning of mm -hmm. beards, facial hair we're focusing particularly mm -hmm. on facial hair and that also made me think of what having facial hair can now mean mm -hmm. uh for example i was thinking of it through the lens of islamophobia mm -hmm. you know where people are 
subjected to discrimination and violence just by virtue of having a beard. And for lots of, like we learned today, and I'm sure people listening to us know, there is a religious significance for mm-hmm. Sikhs, so Muslims do, and, and Jews uh, mm-hmm. do have facial hair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dr. Farah, would you yeah. like to say anything about that? No, that's a really inter- some really interesting points you've shared. Um, so I think let's begin to perhaps um, uh, fan this out a little bit, mm-hmm. this idea of Islamophobia. Um, so I came across this piece of research which was published um, this year in, yeah, this year, and the, the journal is called Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. So what, they, what these researchers um, have actually done is they've looked across five countries, so the US, India, Germany, France and Poland, and they've, so this is a cross-national piece of research, and they wanted to get an idea of um, countries, uh, to try and get an idea of people living in countries that are quite diverse from each other. So, you know, so India has very different social political practices to like France and, you know, Germany and um, Europe. Um, and so w- what they were looking at was what are the emotional layers of Islamophobia? Is it related to anger and disgust? Mm-hmm. And I think, Fatima, as I go on, you'll probably be able to see how, because you were saying about the level of Discuss that you, yeah. yeah. Um, and what they actually found was the a, a big predictor of people who do have Islamophobia traits. So they, they did this with you know quite a lot of people in the study, and um, were actually more sensitive to disgust. So they looked at the uh, people's baseline, like if if people um were more sensitive to disgust, they actually showed higher levels of Islamophobia. Oh, okay. <laughs> What do I make of that, Dr. Farah? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the emotional reaction to um, Muslims and, you know, those who, who uh, practice Islam or, or are from the Islamic faith, um, pe- they also found that people with higher levels of what we call, what we term social dominance orientation. Mm-hmm. So what we mean by social dominance orientation um, obviously, these are all done by questionnaires and people self-report and answer, you know, questions. But so for any of you out there who feel, you know, you, you feel more comfortable perhaps with in-group, um, like an in-group feeling rather than an out-group feeling. And those of you perhaps are on the opposite side of that, to the contrary, you would rather, you would be comfortable with out-group feelings, uh, you know, being with an out-group uh, rather than in-group. And then there are those who come in the middle of the spectrum where they can move in and out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can move in your own group, yeah. whatever the nationality or ethnic or race or appearance, it could be any identity that you carry. And then you can go into another person's group and then move back and forth, which I, th- I believe would be the healthiest position, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so these researchers found that anger was actually correlated with high levels of Islamophobia, which makes sense, mm-hmm. of course, because Islamophobia does have its consequences, like you said, Fatima, with violence and prejudice and, yes. uh, you know, abuse on many levels. Yeah, and, and people who experience it often report feeling anxiety, depression, physical illness, um, loss of income, employment sometimes as a result of being targeted. And it's mm-hmm. not, And I think it's important to point out here that even though Muslims for the large part are the ones on the receiving end of Islamophobia, it's not limited to just uh, Muslim Sikhs mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. receive a lot of 
um, Islamophobic threats and prejudice and discrimination, uh, microaggressions also, but also people with just beards and, and what mm. is sometimes called a Mediterranean skin, so a darker mm. skin, yes, olive, uh, olive skin, olive skin mm. uh, are on the receiving end of uh, Islamophobic uh, practices, mm. prejudices. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I found in my uh, research. Um, and overall, it can be a very isolating experience. And I'm wondering where that kind of hostility, um, and this is something I think I'm looking particularly at the UK when I say this, mm-hmm. uh, began. Again, you're right, Dr. Farid, it is an in-group, out-group thing. Mm-hmm. The thing of, you know, the image, and it's been particularly um, heightened post-Brexit, where this mm-hmm. in-group, out-group thing has been brought into sharper focus, or mm-hmm. that the immigrants are stealing our jobs, or, um, you know, as if those people are less British by mm-hmm. virtue of not being white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you want to maybe say a few words about your own experience of living in the UK um, as a non-white person, Dr. Mm-hmm. Farah, and being British. Yeah, absolutely, Fatima. That's a really interesting and uh, thoughtful question. So, so I think I can really relate to you know Islamophobia per se mm-hmm. uh, from my own personal experiences. And uh, I mean, I'm from an immigrant. I we were in an immigrant family, so we settled in Britain in the sixties. Um, that was our second immigration mm-hmm. uh, by my ancestry. So the first immigration was from India to Kenya. Uh, first Uganda, then Kenya, um, and then the second immigration was from there to then Britain, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think being uh, being an immigrant family and settling in a different nation or a different country, it's a bit like being like a tree. Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of uproot yourself yeah. and then plant yourself in a different, mm-hmm. you know, and it has a lot of advantages, but it comes with a lot of costs emotionally, mm-hmm. financially, practically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know it's how you take it it's, it's what attitude you go with I think that makes the difference mm-hmm. um, but yeah so this was our second immigration as a family and uh, I was born and raised uh, there in a, in a white predominant nation and I was a female I'm a woman of color mm-hmm. and I've spent over 30 years there before I emigrated to you know I went to Saudi then from Saudi I came here mm-hmm. but yeah I spent a lot of years and I, I can identify with that I mean I don't want to kind of outline the details of what was thrown at me, but I mean, I've heard, you know, words and uh, hurled at me, like, you know, what are you doing here, Paki? And, mm-hmm. you know, things like that when I was growing up in school. And, uh, you know, I was actually, so because I'm from Newcastle, mm-hmm. uh, Newcastle's such a small town, right? So back, there was not a lot, not, not a lot of cultural diversity mm-hmm. back then, you know, and I mean, there were immigrants mm-hmm. from Pakistan and India, but I mean, there was not so much as compared to, let's say, London being yeah, the capital. Of course. You know, in London, you have a lot more diversity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Newcastle, there was it was limited. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I mean, I did have, you know, um, friends of all different kinds of ethnicities and, and races, but it was predominantly, so I, I mean, I kind of stood out, of course, as a female of colour. Mm-hmm. And that came with its, you know, consequences, like bullying. Mm-hmm. I have gone through all of that growing mm-hmm. up. And I think... To be honest, looking back, I don't think I would change any of that because it really shaped me who mm-hmm. I am. And I think I think pain just makes you stronger and it kind of helps you to grow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's sad on many levels, but I, I don't think I would change the experiences I've had look, looking back. 
Um, but yeah, I think I think I've also observed this with my friends and peers and everything. And so you know, if there there were not very many, but I had like male uh, classmates who would actually come with the Islamic cap, mm. wearing the Islamic cap, mm. having a beard, mm. and then the, my white friends or white peers would comment and mm. you know really look at them with disgust and contempt. Mm. And and I think that the assumptions that all humans make, we all make them. Mm. But like me. Um, you know, people sort of commenting on my perhaps religion or you know, mm -hmm. you know whatever uh, that I because I'm brown, mm -hmm. it automatically means that I'm Muslim yeah. and that I'm uh, Pakistani yeah. or Indian, right? Yeah. But I mean, I could easily well be Jewish mm -hmm. or Christian mm -hmm. or some other mm -hmm. yeah. religious tradition. You know, so yeah. it's it's the color that you know people assume mm -hmm. by looking at me. Mm -hmm. uh, there, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So this happened in this happened in June um, this year, and it's it was very sad actually. So this it was a, this was a violent um, incident that happened with somebody called Muhammad Kashif, thirty two year old man I believe, and he was unfortunately very tragically stabbed by two people. Um, and as I was reading this, it said you know it was because he was wearing traditional Muslim clothing, and there were some comments that were directed at him by his attackers. Uh, such as go back to your country and why do you have this beard mm -hmm. and I think they actually cut part of his beard off in the in the violent mm -hmm. attack but I was really sad listening uh, you know um, reading this because it, it just speaks to how prevalent it still is mm -hmm. um, even with even with um, even with like the diversity we have now in lots in uh, globally there is so much immigration that's happened mm -hmm. in the last you know 40 50 decades that you would think one would think mm -hmm. that humanity has come to a point mm -hmm. where you know but but it's I think it's never going to end I think there's always going to be people who perhaps um come from a place of persecutory anxiety mm -hmm. and the reason why I'm saying this is because if we take a very Melanie Klein and I've mentioned Melanie Klein to our listeners before but she was a psychoanalyst just for new listeners out there she was a psychoanalyst um and she developed this theory about how people can feel um, so she developed a theory about how we can feel very anxious um, in terms of like you know if we um, if we think we're being attacked by somebody or we're paranoid about certain people certain groups like groups with beards um, if we feel like they're some they're people who shouldn't be within our vicinity or they shouldn't be where we're living whatever she would actually argue that it's because um of anxiety it's about being worried that one's going to be attacked by this group so mm -hmm. you know so yeah we yeah. that that makes sense uh but i also you know i spent a couple of years in scotland and i found that i didn't experience the kind of um racial and uh, religious, you know, discrimination in any way. Maybe because I know the Scottish government does a lot of work on diversity and mm -hmm. inclusivity. Mm -hmm. But also I wonder if there's sort of a larger political context here where the Scots have always been, uh, you know, discriminated against or there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's um, they have, you know, and I, I noticed that whenever I would take the train from Edinburgh to London, I would notice how just on that train ride, like it would get increasingly uncomfortable because you know you'd start in a place where nobody would notice that you're different necessarily in a way that would make you feel like you're out of place but the, as you went further down south that became a lot I became a lot more aware of my own brownness 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's sort of some something about how you know the English, the history of the English, in that, and what brown people have in their collective no, no, that's understanding true. That's of that. Yeah, no, no, that there is there is a history. So you know how like um, the UK is divided by well, if you just look at there's England, Scotland on the north on the top sits on the top, and then you've got on the left hand side you've got Wales, and then of course there's there's uh, Northern Ireland as well that comes into it, but but that's like on an island, so that's a bit away. But in Wales, Welsh and the English, there's a history of them battling with each mm-hmm. other as well. Because when I moved to Wales, I experienced that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just because I was. Like English, mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. I wasn't from Wales, mm-hmm. um, but added to that, it was because I was a female of color. Mm-hmm. That that you know was was a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. But you're quite right that um there is something to do with the Scots and the English, and there's a history between and where there's been rifts and things mm-hmm. like that. But what's a caveat in what you just said is that Scotland is actually um even though now it's like Glasgow is 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 very much full of Indians, Pakistanis, and Sikhs, right? And Edinburgh is as well, but not. So if you have a look at England, there are a lot of lot more English cities that are ethnically mm-hmm. diverse compared to Scotland. So we would we would actually expect the opposite. We would expect more open mindedness mm-hmm. in English cities mm-hmm. versus Scotland mm-hmm. because Scotland has much more land mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's full of green hills and things like that, and it doesn't have a lot of major mm-hmm. uh, towns and cities uh, because it's quite mountainous. It's north. It's hilly. Mm-hmm. So and, and perhaps maybe that's why. Uh, when when immigration did happen, people were able to integrate a little bit better, as opposed to maybe in England where they immigrated in chunks and kind of retained those communities and held on to those. Um, you know, there's some very there are places with a lot of mm-hmm. Pakistani and Indian and Bangladeshi communities that have stayed that way for decades. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, I suppose that's a big question and difficult to answer. Yeah. But um, I thought it would be interesting to share that. Yeah, of course. And uh, just a little snippet of a of a, a funny story. Mm-hmm. When I was in primary school, mm-hmm. um, so this is <laughs> this wasn't malicious in any way because I was only like six or seven. But mm-hmm. it's a memory. It's a very like vague, fleeting memory. Mm-hmm. But um, my mum decided to pack some gulab jamun <laughs> in my lunchbox. Mm-hmm. So there's me and my sister mm-hmm. were in the dining hall in school, <laughs> little kids, and you know I've got my you know. <laughs> female white friends and male white friends next to us. I open my lunchbox and out comes some gulab jamun which went and um, the girl on the table, I can't remember who it was now, but she said, oh, that looks like poo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she didn't know what she was missing out on. No, she didn't. And I think me and my sister were just so mortified. We didn't really know what to say. I think I think my sister I think said something like what do you mean that's our lunch <laughs> yeah I think children are just a lot more honest about difference um, and you're right it probably wasn't malicious but no, no. that's an interesting story thank you for sharing that the other place that I want to uh, go to today is um, the part of the story which we're sort of halfway through and the chapter is called The Great Upside Down Monkey Circus. So here we learn about um, how there are a family of monkeys. So this is quite a nuclear family actually. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's very British the family because mm-hmm. there's a there's a mum, there's a dad and then there's two, two kids. Yeah. Um, and Mr and Mrs Twit um, are 
training them, teaching them, you know, they, they kind of make them uh, go upside down in the cage. Um, and for six hours a day, I think we learned that they practice. So there's a lot of abuse going on there. Mm -hmm. And, and the, so throughout the story, I felt that there was something that really stood out for me, which was the trickster energy and the trickster archetype. So for new listeners out there, what, what I mean by archetype is archi means a primordial or primal. So something that's very like uh, animalistic, our raw instinct as a human species. And type means um, a blueprint or a model. So basically it's like this universal blueprint that we all have and it transcends all cultures, all religions. It's part of our human species. So there is a trickster archetype because we know that Mr. and Mrs. Twit hold pranks on each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're actually like fooling each other, aren't they? Yeah. And then they've got these monkeys who were once used to, to fool other people to like do tricks and, you know, entertain the public. Mm -hmm. So I've selected a couple of quotes that really speaks to this energy in the story, which Rodol really kind of has depicted by this... Um, these kind of you know um, acts that happen where they're pulling pranks on each other and really deceiving one one another in some way so the first quote um, these quotes i've actually extracted from jung's book which is called archetypes and the collective unconscious so he speaks about this trickster archetype and he says in picaresque tales, in carnivals and revels, in magic rites of healing, in man's religious fears and exaltations, this phantom of the trickster haunts the mythology of all ages, sometimes in quite unmistakable form, sometimes in strangely modulated guise. In his clearest manifestations, he is a faithful reflection of an absolutely undifferentiated human consciousness corresponding to a psyche that has hardly left the animal level. Mm. And then the second quote is, the trickster is a primitive cosmic being of divine animal nature, on the one hand, superior to man because of his superhuman qualities, and yet on the other hand, inferior to him because of his reason and unconsciousness. He is no match for the animus either, um, pardon me, he is no match for the animals either because of his extraordinary clumsiness and lack of instinct. These defects are the mark of his human nature, which is not so well adapted to the environment as the animals. Mm. The trickster has been a source of amusement down to civilized times, still being recognized in the clown and carnival figures. So really what we learn from these quotes is that there is a world of primordial darkness mm -hmm. with this trickster energy. Um, and Jung at one point also speaks about this in his writings. Like he talks about how in politics, mm -hmm. there are, there's deception everywhere, mm -hmm. even in political affairs. You've, mm -hmm. got to, you've got to have some um, energy of being a trickster, mm -hmm. a fooling, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of... Um I know this is not uh, maybe exactly what he's referring to, but of jesters at court, and um, but that but that's different because in some ways that's also speaking truth to power, right? Like in mm -hmm. 
is that energy of um, something something quite primal, something mm-hmm. that needs to be said. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe surfaces are different. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I would agree with that. That is, that is very primal, and my mind is going off to a place where you said they speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Is that you, that's what you said? Mm-hmm. So that reminds me of children. Like when you're a fool, you say everything that mm-hmm. comes to your mind. Children do that and they humiliate their parents sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so it, you're right. It mm-hmm. is very primal. Mm-hmm. Children children are still very primal in their ego development, right? Then, you know, that they have to be immature because they haven't developed enough of ego consciousness yet. Mm-hmm. And so speaking the truth is mm-hmm. a bit like you, that's what the fool does. The yeah. fool doesn't have any. Yeah. Editing or they just say what's on their mind. Yeah. Thinking about the trickster archetype that we've just been talking about, the bridge that I want to connect with is I was sort of asking myself, like, where do I see this trickster energy? Um, and perhaps you've also noticed this as well in your uh, practice, Fatma. But, you know, the trickster energy, where where do we see it in our everyday practice, in our consulting rooms? And for me, what came up was, it's actually a bridge to understanding um, antisocial personality disorders. Um, but even if somebody doesn't fit in the, um, you know, the categorical uh, diagnostic um, criteria, there are lots of people out there who do have certain traits so when I talk about traits, it's things like lying, um, deceiving, manipulating other people for their own profit or pleasure. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to, for listeners out there, I'm not going to go through the, um, the, the criteria that we use currently to, to diagnose, but I will talk a little bit about the, um, the aspects of, of antisocial personality, which, which does carry a trickster energy so um so some of the aspects are um stealing from people conning others lying and not actually feeling remorse when you uh, when you know one has hurt somebody else or if you've mistreated somebody else um and that actually links back to jung's quote that i mentioned just earlier about how the trickster is being near animal level so there's something that's not quite I wouldn't say human-like, but I mean, they're humans, of course, they're people who've suffered from some degree of relational trauma, in my opinion, which is why they've developed this antisocial personality way of being in the world and the way of relating with other people. They just haven't learnt how to relate in another way, or this is their tool to relate with the world. Um, But there is something quite inhumane about it, because... Um, I was reading some research earlier on which has just been published in a personality journal this year and they looked at they looked at aspects of being open to others mm-hmm. so they looked at some personality traits like agreeableness how open one is to experience whether someone's a vegetarian or a meat eater okay yeah mm-hmm. and they linked that all with like antisocial personality I want to know which one you know meat eaters or vegetarians or who are more antisocial yeah um so they found that those who are vegetarian naturally have um pro-animal attitudes Mm. you know like Mm. human 
which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we, <laughs> but they also found that meat eaters, <laughs> um, they, even though they might be pro-human, but with people with antisocial personality have um, higher levels of anti-animal attitudes. So what they found was that their basic, con- not conclusion, but the storyline to this piece of research was people with anti-personal, uh, sorry, pardon me, anti-social personality traits um, actually are across species so that it's not that they're aversive to humans or they exploit humans mm-hmm. but they do it across species so they do it with animals too not just humans okay does that yeah, make sense? yeah yeah that does make sense that makes sense because you know one of the criteria um is an example of is cruelty to animals mm-hmm. so um i suppose like you know um, hanging a cat upside down and watching it die would be one example. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a lot of people who end up becoming serial killers and murderers, if you look at their autobiographies, you mm-hmm. you can see that they've done that in their late childhood. Yeah, there's there's three things, right? Like this pyromania, cruelty to animals, and one other thing that I forget. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of no, um, I can't recall now. Pyromania, yes. Mm-hmm. Setting. Fire. fire on things, mm-hmm. vandalizing, mm-hmm. The, you know, stealing, robbing, uh, lots mm-hmm. of different, you know, mm-hmm. it's basically um, breaking social norms. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. if somebody was to be, to meet a clinical diagnosis, they would actually have to meet criteria for conduct disorder, which is the name that we say for when it's, when it's a person be- below 15 mm-hmm. um, years old. Okay. Um, yeah. So for parents out there, I was wondering, um, if you're, uh, don't be alarmed if your children are lying to you because um, it's part of a typical development process. Um, but I mean, of course, you might be concerned that this is something that your ch- son or daughter is doing, especially sons. Um, they're more, more likely, I think, being male just because of their gender and the, and the social norms is that they're, you know, they're out more maybe than, than daughters or they've got more access to, you know, like um, gangs of other boys. They might have peer pressure, things like that, that make them more uh, vulnerable to carrying out um, destructive behaviours like breaking norms, you know, vandalising people's property or stealing or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, for parents out there, so, you know, a couple of examples of very benign very benign lying of children. This usually starts from the um, phallic stage, the Oedipal stage, which is around about four to five years old. Mm -hmm. So if you've got children around that age, don't worry, Mm -hmm. it's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, So say, for example, you've asked, did you eat those cookies? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Did you hit your brother? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. some money's gone and you ask your son or daughter and they deny it and you're pretty sure that they have picked it up or something or you know if it becomes something a bit more than just what's deemed as typical then of course I would be concerned and maybe maybe have a look at how you're responding to your child so um, a lot of children especially those who go on to develop conduct disorder and then antisocial personality as an adult 
um, is that they frequently do it to escape punishment. So, well, we, we know here in this context, a lot of parents, for their own reasons, mm -hmm. it could be not having enough educational knowledge about parenting, it could be their own unresolved mm -hmm. traumas. Mm -hmm. but, but here we see a lot of smacking. Yes. Yeah. It's very common. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, yes, a lot of, and, and I don't know, I mean, there's a spectrum to it, mm. uh, smacking to, you know, then there's lots of other, we could take it to lots of different levels, physical abuse. Mm. But um, certainly here with antisocial personality, the child will then learn to lie or to deceive you as a parent to escape your punishment. So that's one area that I would really reflect on. And even if you're not physically abusing or physically spanking or you know giving a, a slap or something even if you're verbally shaming or not that you might intend to hurt your child mm. nobody does that you know in, in consciously anyway to to hurt but if you're verbally sort of um penalizing your child then then have a look at your own response as well because it, and, I, and I would really encourage parents to really reflect on themselves because and I know children can be very um frustrating at times you know and they can be sort of what we say naughty call naughty behaviors mm -hmm. but usually just just watch because when you become more positive with them that these behaviors usually die down because they don't need to then resort mm -hmm. to lying or stealing so always ask yourself if they're lying or if they've stolen a, an aunt's purse or something or they've stolen your brother's mm -hmm. you know your your uh, whoever then what is the what is the behavior saying so the child is telling you something through their behavior it always has a voice mm. and and th your job as a parent if you want to do this mm -hmm. your job is to be a detective mm -hmm. and decipher mm -hmm. and decode your child's behavior before it gets you know mm -hmm. into a ingrained pattern Thank you, Dr. Farah. Those are really helpful tips for parents. So, Dr. Farah, we know that the book was written for children, um, and I was wondering if anything stood out to you as you read the book. It did. The, the part that stood out for me was at the um, more in the beginning, I think, of the story. So this is um, the part where Roald Dahl is uh, talking about um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Twit, and he is um, describing how their appearance is in terms of um, their beards. And at one point, there is a sentence where he says, um, Mrs. Twit, um, that she had lots of ugly thoughts. The uglier she thought, the uglier she looked. Mm -hmm. And that really stood out for me so much because I feel that Roald Dahl is um, saying something quite profound to children, although he might not have done this intentionally himself, but he's saying something really important in terms of the psyche and the soul um, in the sense that inner beauty is um, very important. Having, 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 um, having positive thoughts is actually going to have an impact on the way that you look. 
And this is not to say that anyone looks, uh, you know, I mean, in Mr. and Mrs. Twit is described as being, you know, ugly people. That's not, um, it's not saying that, that they're going to look a particular way, whether they're going to look good or not good, but it does have an effect on the way our facial expressions form perhaps, or even, you know, the dullness of our skin, mm -hmm. um, what diseases, what viruses we contract because of our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And we've known this as psychologists for, and therapists, we've known this for um, decades now, that, you know, our cognitions, what we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. our inner commentary, do we berate ourselves much of the day? Mm -hmm. So whenever someone comes to me in my consulting room, I'm quite curious and concerned about what their psychological diet is mm -hmm. you know like what are they consuming mm -hmm. okay that's could, a concern could you say more about what a psychological diet is perhaps yes so psychological diet is what are they consuming internally not just externally so you know we we talk about digi digital the digital world mm -hmm. technology uh, people now, even my, my own patients, they kind of clock themselves in terms of how much screen time they've had every day. So that in some respects is also a psychological diet. Sometimes I'm um, baffled by the amount of screen time that people have on Instagram and different... Um, so this is not me being anti-social media, but I'm just because I'm a person who is very, very conscious of what I, I don't want to be consuming, like, you know, um, endless passive nonsense about other people. I'm just either I'm just not interested in, you know, and it's, it's not that I'm uh, aversive to negative content, of course, mm -hmm. but I'm just very, very mindful of what I'm, what I take in my diet psychologically. So what I'm consuming, what I'm looking at, um, what I'm even saying to myself, you know, if I've made an error or I feel I've said something that I shouldn't have, mm. I do ponder on it and feel mm, guilty and want to try and repair it somehow and then I go into introspection mode. Um, but uh, I'm very mindful of not staying too long mm. in that position of um, Farah, how stupid were you to mm. say this and Farah, you know, and saying lots of things, mm -hmm. my internal voice. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by psychological diet. Okay, okay, that helps. <laughs> I know I, I derailed you from your what you were actually saying, so that's okay. You are welcome to return to that. <laughs> no problem. So going back to uh, Roald Dahl's message to children, mm -hmm. I think he's actually saying quite a big statement, and I'm not sure if children would have picked up on this, but for me, it's like, you know, if you have ugly thoughts, it's going to affect you in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something that I want to spend a little bit of time on, is a lot of people out there, our listeners out there know, you know, we're in a pandemic, although things are at some level returning to some normal normal that we had pre-COVID but um, we are still you know at some level in it and we're still trying to navigate ourselves globally as a human species through it and maybe some of our listeners out there have you observed this in your own lives where you know the, the people who um, tend to uh, perhaps be more negative maybe say negative things more uh, and not be very positive in their temperament or mood about it could be about anything it could be about covid the virus it could be about a news 
um, announcement, some anything that's going on in our world. Um, and maybe you have made that correlation or observation that the people who seem to be more negative are the ones who actually end up getting viruses, including COVID. Mm -hmm. And I know from my own experience that people who are, it's actually the people who are very, very cautious. And of course we have to be cautious. You know, you have to kind of uh, wear, you know, be, be careful, wear a mask, get vaccinated, whatever you need to do to protect yourself from it. Um, that's not gonna. That's not gonna guarantee safety. Nothing does in the in the world or in the universe. We can take as much precaution as we want, but when the universe wills for something to happen, it's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's always the people who are actually extra cautious who end up getting it, and it's the ones who, you know, yeah. No, not in your head. I, I would agree with you. I think that there is definitely a connection between, uh, well, the mind and the body. Yes, they're not necessarily two different things, but. Uh, there's some there is in my in my own sort of anecdotal um, experience I would say that even at points in my own life where I have not felt so great psychologically or mentally I've been more susceptible to illness or physical stuff or physical ailments but um, at times when I haven't been I've been you know coping better mm -hmm. yeah yeah mm -hmm. I think it's a given now isn't it that your immune system when it it, it gets compromised by your psychological and mental well-being, your mm -hmm. emotional state, mm -hmm. let's say. Mm -hmm. And that leads me then to talk a little bit about vibration. Do you know about vibration frequency in humans? Uh, we all have electrical energies running through us. Tell us more about that, Dr. Far. I don't know very much about it myself. Oh, that's okay. Um, so we all have an electrical energy. Of course, if you go with the law of physics and everything, energy, even emotion is an energy. Mm -hmm. So even the even the word emotion, e-motion, mm -hmm. it's energy in motion. Ah, ah. I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just my fascination with words. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. you get it, if yeah. you separate yeah. the e from the motion. Yeah, yeah. never thought of it yeah. like that. And so, so our emotions are actual... Um, mm -hmm. And energies, mm -hmm. uh, like, so, you know, if we're guilty, if we're feeling sh ashamed, if we're angry, mm -hmm. angry is such an emo, mm -hmm. anger is such an emotional, mm -hmm. like, energy, mm -hmm. it's, it has a lot of destructiveness to it, mm -hmm. can, mm -hmm. it can have a lot of mm -hmm. destructive charge to it, yeah. but if we go with physics, then, we all have a, a frequency, and so, whenever you and me have been ill mm -hmm. with a cold or a flu, mm -hmm. then our vibrational frequency has been has dropped under 60, 60 okay. hertz. So hertz is, you know, the units, I, I don't know a lot about this myself, I'm not a phys physician or something mm -hmm. like that, but um, from what I know, just as a lay person, that hertz is the, the unit of energy that's measured. So it's like one hertz equals one cycle per second. Okay. Something like that. But okay. listeners out there, if you, are very <laughs> clued up with physics and your knowledge is please do correct us you mm -hmm. can write into us and let us know or give us your feedback about this mm -hmm. um so our frequency level and vibration is actually affected by lots of things like what we eat what we consume our psychological diet um what we think our mood our temperament a whole host of different things and we have an overall frequency and it shouldn't really drop below 60. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I was looking at the chart just earlier as to what kind of emotions are what frequency. 
And the person who is enlightened has a has a hertz of seven hundred. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> okay. Very high. Very high. Yeah. Shame is twenty. Mm-hmm. Guilt is around thirty. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the mid range ones where you're if you're neutral and you're more detached and calm, mm-hmm. then it's something like a couple of hundred, two hundred, mm-hmm. and then it goes up. If you're joyful, it goes up to three to four hundred. So do you get do you get how like we really need to be high mm-hmm. in terms of our vibrational frequency mm-hmm. in our bodies? Okay, that's really interesting. I never knew much about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if if any of you out there are interested, then you can just Google somebody called Bruce uh, Tainio, who I believe. Um, developed and manufactured the first frequency monitor where you can monitor the range of frequency okay yeah it's in washington us do you just like plug it into yourself or step into it what does it look like i think it's a plug and it's it's almost similar to you know the uh, bio bio feedback Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where you put your thumb in Mm -hmm. or your finger in and it measures yeah i think it's akin to that okay yeah but he has a company called Tainio uh, Technology, which is based in Washington, US. Okay. If any, if anybody's interested in looking that up, um, so it just reminded me of how, like you know, we do our thoughts and cognitions when we think very negative, when we think very hostile, when we have those thoughts. If we stay too too long in there, then it's gonna manifest in some way shape or form Mm -hmm. you know so would you say dr fire to remedy that or change that would you need to change your physical state or your emotional state Uh, what do you mean by physical state uh so like your physical health your overall well-being your immunity like do you work upward or in a top down or a bottom up kind of way Oh, oh right. yes, I, I think I know what you mean. Mm. Oh, do you, do you mean like an inside out? Yeah. Uh, do you work from the inside out mm-hmm. or outside in? Yes. Ah, oh, right. For those with depression or those who are more prone to depressive episodes and mood disorders, then I would actually argue go with the outside in. Mm-hmm. So this is me saying, speaking as a clinician, as a, as a um, psychologist and therapist, is whenever I've worked with people who are quite, you know, on the de- depressive end mm-hmm. especially severe depression because we know depression is on a spectrum mm-hmm. uh, but if you are prone to having depressive spirals and cycles in your life then I would work with the outside in so what I mean by outside in is um, you're, you're not really a self-starter so those who don't have depression can get up even those with anxiety disorders anxiety means that you are too much on self-start because you're not you're doing everything yourself you're always way ahead of your schedule you've got your anxiety working um, a lot of the time for you Mm -hmm. it counteracts that depression lying in bed putting your alarm clock off Mm -hmm. not going to work or a meeting not seeing your friends whatever it might look like Mm -hmm. not getting things done and then you're that affects your mood even more you feel worse about yourself we all know about what the depressive cycle is like but outside in means that you need some external help 
from the outside, whether it's a person coming and knocking on your door and mm. getting you out of bed, mm -hmm. or whether it's a YouTube video mm. jump-starting you. Mm. It's a bit like a car analogy. If you've got a self-starting battery going on and your car engine's working fine, you're on self-start. If you need to jump-start your battery every day with mm. jump leads, mm -hmm. you need external help. You need yeah. external help, yeah. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. So, Dr. Farah, I, the, the book is called The Twits, and um, Mr. and Mrs. Twits' relationship is kind of a big feature of it, especially in the first few chapters, but all the way to the end. Mm. And I was wondering what you thought of their relationship as you read the book. Their relationship has a few layers to it, but what I would say is, even though they're husband and wife, mm -hmm. they're, they're a marital couple, it seems very sibling-like to me. Mm. Okay. Because of the, the competitiveness or any other qualities that feel sibling-like to you? Yeah, the competitiveness and also the, talk, the teasing, the taunting, the playing tricks on each other, um, that's very sibling-like. And then at one point, um, they don't share beds. Mm -hmm. they, have a, they have a single bed. Mm -hmm. I mean, although they are in their 60s, yeah. not to be ageist in any way, you can still have a very active sex mm -hmm. life at 60. Mm -hmm. um, but it just seems very sibling-like. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to have the, the affection. Well, I mean, there's no, there's no romantic energy at all between them. Mm -hmm. At least that's not how Roald Dahl has depicted their relationship. Mm -hmm. But just the way that they're quite competitive, rivalry, mm -hmm. um, you know. But then on, on, on some level, though, it does seem to have a lot of traditional gender roles in it because mm -hmm. we know that she's the one who cooks the birds, mm -hmm. Mr. Twit's the one who goes out and uh, goes hunting and shoots the birds to bring. Mm -hmm. So he's the one who very masculine going out there providing the food but the mm -hmm. wife then cooks at home mm -hmm. and she's tending to the garden um, and and he's making things in the garden mm -hmm. so it, it, in that respect it's quite um they quite they have quite traditional gender roles which seems very eastern to me although Roald Dahl's coming from it from a you know, I mean, he was British himself mm -hmm. and everything, but this could easily be a very Pakistani couple. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it could be. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, yeah, and I, I think that it's the way that they're depicted in the uh, book. Um, it, it's easy to see that as, you know, very dysfunctional, very sanitized in terms of sexuality or romance or mm -hmm. affection, marriage. Um but I, I, and maybe you could argue that that's what it is, it's a dysfunctional marriage, but there is something about the tricks that they play on each other, it feels a bit like a dance to me sometimes, you know, it's like, mm. it's, it's, it's not, it's definitely cruel and malicious and all of those things, but there's, there's also a lot of uh, playfulness about it, I don't mm. know, to me it felt a bit like there was a playful energy and Yes, they do, they do do things that are quite extreme, like a frog and the bear, or the glass eye, or the <laughs> spaghetti and the worms. Those are big things. They're not playful things necessarily, or harmless things even. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like they kind of match each other's energy as they do that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also thinking that you could think of it as maliciousness, or cruelty, or deviousness even. Um, but they're 
if they really wanted to, they are capable of a lot more. Like, you know, with the monkeys, they really do torture them together. And, and they're kind of unified in that yes. attack. And with the crows, when they catch them. So if they really wanted to murder each other or hurt each other or get rid of each other, I'm sure they were capable of finding a way to do that. But this feels more like, to me at least, it feels like part of this is entertaining. I'm not saying there's a lot of love between them necessarily or a lot of affection. But the the back and forth of it is like a dance, right? Mm-hmm. They they do something with it. Just as you were speaking then mm-hmm. about um, they're both unified. Mm-hmm. That that that's a really really good word you've used because uh, I just I've just recently read um, an autobiography on Fred West. Okay, I'm not oh. familiar with Fred West. Oh, okay, sorry. So Fred West in the 70s up to the 90s, he was uh, was a very famous British serial killer. So Mr. and Mrs. West, uh, Fred West um, had uh, committed suicide. Well, he'd he'd hanged himself in prison, but his his wife, Rose West, is, I believe, still alive and still in prison. And she will be in her 70s now or in 70, I believe. So they were very unified, just mm-hmm. like Mr. and Mrs. Twit. I mean, I'm, I'm bringing a very extreme example mm-hmm. because we know that extremities happen with um, uh, people who do commit murders, mm-hmm. but they, they spent 20 years together mm-hmm. um, murdering young women. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were babysitters. There was one child uh, that they, they had a daughter who they also murdered. Um, but yeah, they decapitated the bodies too, but they were very capable of doing um, mm. barbaric mm. Um, and, you know, um, mutilation of, mm. of humans, of, you know, alongside sexual abuse as well and mm. de- very deviant sexual practices that they both engaged in. But the book's actually called Evil Love yeah. because the person who's written it has the impression that their love was an evil love what kept them together and doing these murders over years and years before the police even found the, the, the bodies underneath the mm-hmm. cellar. Mm-hmm. But it just, just what you said there when you said unified mm-hmm. just made me think of that, mm-hmm. um, that actually they're both, although they're not committing murders, but you know, at one point, Mr. Twit, doesn't he get a gun and he's going to... Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. he does. Um, and, and that's really interesting that you drew that connection, Dr. Farah, and maybe you want to say more about this, but I'm really... Uh, interested if um, uh, I mean you might not even know this but um, what was the relationship that Fred and Rose had like was there love do they talk about it and because that you know those things feel like they're difficult to hold together that Mm -hmm. level of deviousness or deviant behavior Mm -hmm. and and love evil Mm -hmm. love in that way to me the way that my own analysis just Mm -hmm. from having recently finished it was what kept them together was that they mirrored each other's, so like Rose West um, was somebody who he could um, tame because she was only like 16 when they first got together and everything. Mm -hmm. And his sexual fantasies, she played out. Mm -hmm. Her sexual fantasies, he played out. But they had very distinct roles, Mm -hmm. uh, almost a bit like Mr. and Mrs. Twit. Their roles was, Fred was the one who was the, uh, the one who made the decisions at home. He was the one who did the renovations. Mm-hmm. He was the one who brought in the money. She was working part-time from home. Um, 
uh, being a sex worker with clients, she mm -hmm. had her own special room, mm -hmm. and she had her dominance in some way in, inside the house, but Fred would be the one to um, be able to know everything that she's doing. So he would be able to see through a peephole in the door mm -hmm. when she was with clients. So he was the master really mm -hmm. in the relationship, but Rose was equally getting what she mm -hmm. needed and wanted because she, she you know, uh, wanted children. Mm -hmm. So she, she had, I think almost every year was spent in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I think they ended up with about nine or 10, I believe, children. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she also had some uh, mixed race children mm -hmm. because he also had a, Fred also had a fantasy that she would get pregnant from one of her black Mm -hmm. sex uh, mm -hmm. worker clients mm -hmm. so they played for me what kept them together was for me that is not real love that's mm -hmm. not a mature love it's very infantile and it's mm -hmm. so so tragic mm -hmm. and so sad and others may not agree with me which is absolutely fine mm -hmm. but just as a psychologist and as a human being and just as somebody from a detached perspective mm -hmm. who can understand why they would do these because it, obviously in the autobiography I learned about Fred's own childhood mm -hmm. and, and in his own childhood I mean his mum had sex with him his dad had sex with him it was something so normal mm -hmm. he grew up with that mm -hmm. and that's not absolving his responsibility yeah, but, but you know I think as therapists we can understand when people mm -hmm. act out extreme behaviours like that yeah. Okay, that that helps to contextualize Mr. and Mrs. Twit, and maybe we won't say something like maybe I wouldn't say they're necessarily compatible, but they do um, they do fulfill some need for each other, and that's don't probably they? what keeps them together. Yeah, they do. I think, mm -hmm. don't they? Yeah, they have that. Like you said, they have that equal. Um, you know, when they play tricks on each other, mm -hmm. that the playfulness, they they match each other's. Energy. Energy. And yeah. similarly with Fred and Rose West, they matched mm -hmm. energies yeah. in terms of their sexual, you know, yeah. fantasies and things, yes. And I would like to hope and believe that there is some sort of, you know, we don't know anything about what their life was like before their 60s, so oh, maybe yeah. there's a background story Perhaps. which is promising or romantic or lovely and, <laughs> and now they've just grown to be bitter old people, but um, it's possible that there never was that either. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've also wondered if they have any children and if they did, how they treated them. Because, mm. you know, the way they treated the monkeys, mm. the, the muggle wumps, um, and that family was quite horrible. What, the... The way the, the monkeys were treated. Yes, oh, absolutely. Mm. And the way that they're very, very uh, abusive, keeping them standing um, for, I think, eight hours mm. or nine hours on... You know, upside down, and I think the infant monkey at one point lost consciousness or fainted. Mm -hmm. I think because too much blood rushed to his head or something. Yeah, and that reminds me of Michael Jackson. Okay. Michael Jackson also um, speaks or spoke rather. God rest his soul. As you know, listeners, I'm <laughs> well. As you know now, I'm a fan of Michael Jackson because I grew up with his with his songs and. Um, so, yeah, Michael Jackson also spoke in his own documentaries and also his own autobiography, which I read mm -hmm. many, many years ago now, I can't remember it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, 
from memory, it's my memory serves me right. He also was, you know, spanked by his dad. Mm -hmm. Like his father actually really did maltreat him. Mm -hmm. So he was only like four or five. He had to get the uh, moves right of his dance sequence. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't, he'd get caned and, you know, lots of punishment and lots mm -hmm. of physical torture. And I saw the same thing with these monkeys. Mm -hmm. uh, although Roald Dahl doesn't take it that far because I think he was very aware of this being children reading it. Yes. You know, do you know what I mean? But I think we can, you and me can let our imagines run wild a bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's a really interesting uh, way of looking at it. And I know it will take us completely off track, so I'm not going to ask you this, but I'm just wondering, uh, you know, are, are people, you know, is, is the maternal or the paternal instinct or the need to nurture sort of an innate thing or is it a nurture thing? Are we born to be parents or are we, is it our own parental experiences? Uh, but those are like, you know, when we think of things like that, it's so, it doesn't, for me at least, it doesn't quite sit well with me that a parent would do that to a child. And yet in our work, we see that all the time and mm -hmm. uh, that parents do mistreat their children um, or that they, they are abusive and they, they can be all sorts of things mm -hmm. that don't fit our idea of what a parent should and shouldn't do. Um, so perhaps it's a lot more common than we would like to believe. Um. Thank you for listening to this episode of our series on the Pakistani couch. We really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive. We hope you'll feel able to write in to us either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams. Your dreams will be anonymised and any personal details won't be shared. We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours. There are two main ways that you can write in to us. The first is to email us on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch. Until next time, take good care of yourselves. Thank you.